0: This episode is brought to you by Waste mailing list. Check out Seth's latest video with Mark De Silva speaking all about his brilliant novel, The Logos. Watch it now on YouTube. Welcome to season two, episode 45 of Beyond the Zero. I'm your host, Ben. Joining me today is David Keenan. David is a writer whose new novel, Industry of Magic and Light, is out now through White Robert Books. Welcome back to the show, David.
1: It's great to be back, Ben. Thank you for having me.
0: <laughs> How's your summer going in Glasgow?
1: Um, it's been a really amazing, wild, busy summer. I haven't had much of a summer because I've been really working through most of the summer, so my gardens, I haven't been in my garden as much as I, I usually, as much time as I usually spend there, which I have missed. But it's been so busy because everything came together. And at one time, you know, we'd, we had the launch day for Industry of Magic and Light. And then all of a sudden, this theatre adaptation of, of This is Memorial Device was happening at the exact same time that the book was coming out. So everything sort of came together. So it's been a real summer of really mm. celebrating Memorial Device and celebrating Industry of Magic and Light. I've done a lot of traveling, hung out with a lot of people, been in some festivals. I've seen the Memorial Device play. I think five, five times now, I'm I'm like a fanboy, I'm like, you know, I'm like a groupie, I'm totally addicted to going there, I love the vibe, it's so exciting and moving, and so I've been through in Edinburgh a lot, and just also just really enjoying Edinburgh International Book Festival, which is the best fucking book festival in the world, it is amazing, and this year especially, it's just, it's so good, it's so well run, the venues are beautiful, it's so all-inclusive, there's so much stuff going on, and they put so much in there, and I've had such great support from the Book Festival this year, both for industry and for Memorial Device. It's really been quite incredible. And it's also been like a sort of um, a sort of rally, a rallying point for Memorial Device fans, because so many people have travelled and loads of people have the Memorial Device badge on at the play. And so you get to meet a, peop- a lot of people you sort of knew virtually online. So uh, this whole community has sprung up surrounding my books. And it, I mean, it kind of blows my mind, because on one hand, I'm like, well, my books are normally t- talked about as being like experimental fiction. I mean, I'm not sure about that myself. But I understand why people describe them as that. And yet, they're incredibly popular. And they're incredibly popular with people who don't even normally, not only not read experimental fiction, but people who don't really read that much as well. I mean, I've been moved by the amount of people who I have spoken to who struggle with literacy, but who make their way through my books. I mean, and that's mind blowing to me, you know?
0: Yeah, I don't know. I find that the fact that Memorial Device has such a following and your writing has such a following and I love your writing so much. It is just such a pleasure speaking with you again. But um, I can totally see why people are like intrigued with the theater adaptation of Memorial Device. But I'm curious about how that got started and how, you know, how that came about.
1: Well, originally what happened is we were invited to do a one off. A one-off performance of a one-off theatrical performance of *Memorial* device a couple of years ago by Edinburgh International Book Festival during the book festival one night at the Spiegel Tent. Um, so I I know nothing about theater. I mean, I used to when I was younger. My my mom and I would go to the Citizens Theater quite a lot, and I saw a lot of Shakespeare and Tolstoy adaptations and things like that, and quite enjoyed that at the time. But I've never kept up with contemporary theater. Don't really know anything about it. And, and, and for me, I have to say that a theatrical adaptation or a TV adaptation or um, a film adaptation is not something particularly I care about or I'm interested in. I'm a, I'm a, I am love the books. These are books that were meant to be books. So it's not something I've been actively pursuing. But so I wasn't sure when Greenby Toff got in touch. He was the director. He had previously adapted Lanark for Edinburgh Book Festival years ago, and that was a pretty legendary production. So I knew his credentials were really good, but I wasn't quite prepared to let go because I care about Memorial Device so much. I just don't want anyone to fuck it up or or someone who, <coughs> who doesn't get it. So I was quite hands-on, I think. At first, I think they were all quite surprised that I was turning up for, like, every rehearsal when we were first doing this. And I just wanted to get a feel of what the crew were like. And me and Graham, Etoff would sort of live edit the script together during rehearsals. And I began to see that Graham had the vision down. The team was brilliant. So, we did this first one off and it was brilliant. I was really happy with it. It was really, really good. And then this year we were approached again. and said, we want to do a full run this time. We want to do a full run for the entire book festival. Different, a different cast. <coughs> it's kind of one of more of a one-man show. It has a lot of video stuff as well coming in. Paul Higgins plays the role of Ross Raymond and uh, and he's... So I gave them carte blanche, I was like, go for it, I totally trust you. I went through to rehearsal just before we moved it through Edinburgh and it actually went live. I went to rehearsal and I was really extremely moved by it. In fact, I've wept probably at the end of every single production that I've sat through because the end is absolutely incredible. And you know, one of the things, the easy or the straight thing to do would just have been tell the story of the book, tell the story of Memorial Day. But the But the, the play goes so much deeper. In a way that it gets to the sort of cosmic heart of it, the, the, the psychic truth of the book somehow is made overt. There's an incredible moment at the end where Paul Paul Higgins Ross Raymond has been talking about, you know, Re, um, Lucas's concept of autonomic dreaming and how it's related to the organs and how there are movements you can make. You can make these. He comes up with these movements that mimic the, the, the song of the organs, and what? Paul and Graham. Dad is at the end. Paul Higgins dances, dances the moves that Lucas taught him, almost like, almost like in a, uh, like in a kind or almost like he's raising the dead. He's bringing something back to life. It's like a ritual. So he starts doing these body moves that he's been taught by Lucas, and then the music comes on. The music, the Pastels put together the what they thought the music from. The Morning of the Executioners, which is the posthumous LP that Patty and Remy put together using recordings that Lucas made of the Don Chorus and the overdubbed music. So this music comes on. They're playing The Morning of the Executioners, and Ross Raymond starts to dance using these moves. And then he starts to quote these lines that are in Lucas's journal in memorial Device lines that maybe haven't been as quite as important to me, but they saw something in these lines. So what he basically says is, Ross starts doing this dance and he starts repeating these lines from Lucas's diary, like a mantra. And he says, who? We. Yes. Yes. And then he starts repeating this as a mantra. And your people in the audience start shooting, yes. (laughs) You know, they put their arms up, yes. And it's, it's so affirmative and beautiful, and it's a summation of the positivity and and and, and the, how art can transform suffering and difficulty, and I sort of celebrate, and it's something affirmative. And of course, unwittingly, without them knowing or being conscious of it, unwittingly echoes the, the favorite my favorite ending of any book ever, which is Ulysses, which is yes, yes I will, yes. So that's throwing parallel for me and that as well. And they totally got it. It was completely moving. Um... And just to see it's what every writer wants, to to, to really have the characters step off the page and and take on their own life. And that's what's happened with Memorial Device. There's a whole community. There's a whole world based around it now. Um, And it's incredible and really moving to see. Beautiful.
0: That must have been such an unbelievable experience as an author, seeing your work transposed into something completely other and completely, you know, having a new life outside, you know, what you have written on the page.
1: Yeah, and I began to realise that I didn't, that M- Memorial device doesn't belong to me. Well, i said that with all my books, and I'd be like, I don't have the definitive interpretation of any of my books. In fact, even what they're what they, what they what they're trying to do, or the truth of them, is constantly in flux, and often I don't really know even what the book's fully about until I finish it. Like, what happened with Monument Maker? when I, I really I broke into tears when I realised what what I had done with Monument Maker, so I'm always sort of, my relationship to the books is always in flux. I think anyone else's interpretation of them is equally valid as my own. When I began to realise that Memorial Device isn't mine anymore. The whole point of that book is it's about multiple tellings. It's about what was your Memorial Device? What was your story growing up in these small towns? How did art and music and literature change your life forever? You know, and even the book itself thrives on contradictory tellings. The characters contradict each other all the time in the book. So I began to think the nature of Memorial Device demands multiple iterations. It should be out in the world having its own life. And in a way, this version of Memorial Device is now added to the mythos in ways that I wouldn't have thought up. For instance, one of the conceits of the production is that it, we're in the We Red Bar in Edinburgh, which was a gig venue, and Ross Raymond has come back to the place where he saw this magical event by Memorial Device in an attempt to see if he can resurrect them or the spirit and the energy of Memorial Device or what he experienced that day that, that sort of uh, that, that, that changed his life, you know? And so I didn't know Memorial Device played in the wee red bar because as far as I can remember in Memorial Device, I thought they only played Edinburgh once, and then it was the venue that they played. But turns out I was wrong. There was another gig that I didn't know about. They played the wee red bar once. So the mythos is increasing it under its own steam. And I also have a thing about my books in which they're, they're organisms. They're, 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 they're living systems in a way. And so the fact that they would grow all these appendages, that they would go somewhere else, that they would start attracting all this, these these uh, this extra detail to the myth—it's beautiful. It's, it's how my bo- my books function. It's how they work. So to see it is—it's a complete honour and just underlines my own belief in the in the, 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 the that I've charged these books with life. You know.
0: Yeah, I completely see that, and we will talk about this soon because I feel like your novels have almost, you've created the universe within your novels and it seems consistent across all of them in certain ways. But I feel like this uh, novel, the industry of magic and light almost connects them all. Before we get into that, I just want to ask you briefly about uh, the audiobooks of these books that right. you have recently done, because I feel like that after speaking with you the first time, that when I read your books, I'm able to read in your rhythm um, but having those audiobooks available is unbelievable. How is recording those, and how's that, pair, how's that process been?
1: Uh, I loved it. I mean, I've really got the bug now. I don't know why I did it, didn't do it earlier. Lack of confidence. Faber, when I was on Faber, they had they had little interest, and in, they never did an audiobook for Memorial Advice or for the good times. And then when X to came out, I was kind of presented with, well, we're going to use these people recording." record, it. and it never occurred to me. you say, wait a minute, I, I could do it. And so then they did it with Monument Maker. And to be honest with you, I've never been able to bring myself to listen to the audiobook of Monument Maker. I just know I'm not, not going to like it. Um, and it's funny. So I went down and I said, can I uh, do the, the audiobook of Industry of Magic and Light? And everyone was quite keen. One thing that Ryan Orion, or, who are the company that own White Rabbit, are very interested in it, is promoting regional voices. So I think they were into the fact that I was a Glaswegian reading my own book. And the funny thing is as I began to do the rhythm, I loved it, getting the voices because I always read my books out loud anyway. So they are very oral, they're very rhythmic. So it's it very easy for me to get into that mood. And as I began reading the, the studio engineer who'd recorded Monument Maker said, uh, wow, I should recorded Monument Maker but he said, because the people we got in just, they didn't get it. They didn't get it. They couldn't get into the rhythm. They were very actorly and they were playing roles. <laughs> but they couldn't get the rhythm. And that was kind of amazing. In fact, the studio, so they had a whole cast of different professional voiceover, voice actors or whatever, to read different parts of Monument Maker. And he, the studio engineer said that it was driving the people who were reading it mad. He said the only time he's ever been threatened with physical violence by an actor was an actor who was struggling to read Monument Maker. They got into a massive fight they were angry. Actually, almost had a physical fight over it, which I thought was amazing. That's great that my books can do that. But so um I did industry in magic and light and I really loved it. So we decided, you know what, we'd really like to do Monument Maker. So I I felt as a Faber hadn't been particularly supportive. Um they weren't getting I haven't really done much with Memorial Advice so or the For the good things since they came out, even those books are even though those books are still completely alive now, still perhaps even more alive than they were when they were first published. So I began to feel that morally. Um, Faber should surrender the rights to Memorial Device if they're not doing anything. I mean, me, Lee Braxton, White Rabbit, the Memorial Device community were constantly boosting Memorial Device. You know, it's sort our of thing. So they they, they they agreed with the moral argument and they surrendered the the the, the audio. So I then recorded the audio of uh, this is Memorial Device, and what an experience, man! I mean, I hadn't read that book for a while. Certainly hadn't read it out loud since probably my what it's proof reading it or something back in the day and it was amazing. I loved it. It was great to go back. I loved the rhythms. It was was like meeting the characters all over again. There were some details I had forgotten. It was an absolute pleasure, a real, an absolute pleasure to go back to it. So now I've totally got the bug and I'm planning on doing, I'll be doing all my audiobooks from now on. In fact, fingers crossed, I'm petitioning to go back and redo my earlier ones. So I'm hoping that I'm going to redo, maybe in time for the the Monument Maker paperback coming out. hopefully i'm going to re-record the 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 audiobook of that as well
0: god i hope you do because that will be my companion to work every single day i will be listening Ah, to ah. you in the car on repeat nonstop. i love it (laughs) tonight obviously we're celebrating the publication of industry magic and light and i've seen you doing readings i've seen you doing lots of events and stuff like that but i wanted to know like how's the reception been for you so far
1: Above, above and beyond anything I could hope, the reviews have been absolutely mind-blowing. Mind-blowing. And what's happened now with, with the way people review me it has changed, and it's very specific, and I'm, I'm very touched by it. I think earlier on, well, when perhaps post-Extabeth, a lot of reviewers struggle a little bit because they want to say what the book's about. They want to describe the plot. And in a way, that's not how you approach my books, and that's not how you approach any book. You can't make me be interested in a book by telling me the plot. I need to know something about the writer. I need to know something about the rhythm. I need to know something about his approach to language, all of these things. And what's been an absolute delight with all of the reviews of Industry and Magic and Light is they more engage with the ethos of the book and how it, makes, how it makes them feel rather than breaking it down. They try to write reviews that somehow match the sort of exuberant, psychedelic, modern style of the books. And that to me is a brilliant compliment. In fact, I don't think a single review so far of industry imagining like there's maybe been about sex oh amazing i don't think a single review has ever mentioned a single other writer or compared them to a single other writer they're almost comparing them to my other books mm-hmm. and they write the reviews by sort of mirroring what i'm doing and that's an incredible compliment you know i feel like maybe what i'm doing is singular enough that there's they're no longer bringing comparisons to it i think that's amazing so so far the reception has been Absolutely incredible. I think people are very excited to be back in Airdrie. I certainly am. I didn't know I would ever revisit this territory again. Um, and when I started the book, I realized I was back in Airdrie. I realized it was the 1960s. And I got very excited because I thought, wow, who am I going to meet? Who is going to turn up? And how is this going to go? I had no idea. So it's been really exciting for me.
0: Yeah. I remember we were talking about the fact that you know you've obviously got quite a few books in your catalog that haven't been published. And when I was reading this, I was kind of curious to know when in that catalogue it was produced. And um, because obviously I know that like things like Exodus, you know, preceded other works and, you know, Memorial Device and um, For the Good Times were, you know, conceived earlier. But in terms of that writing process, when did Industry and Magic of Light come out?
1: and they- I I
0: think it's the most
1: recent book that it's the book that's gone quickest from finishing to publication. A lot of my earlier books had been written maybe a few years before they actually came out. Some of them quite a few years before they actually came out. But this was written pretty much almost just, I think I was working on, so I was working on a book called Conspiracy of Girls for a bit, which I finished when I was in France, part of it set in France. I finished that. I don't know if I'm I'm ever going to publish that. That's that's been put to one side for the moment that it's done. Then I started another book Book, uh, Book of, books of moses which um I, I, which i interrupted i wrote a rough draft of industry of magic and light went back to books of moses finished it to a certain point put that to one side then went back to the final edit on industry of magic and light and then worked on industry solidly until basically now until it was probably so yeah, it's the most contemporary thing i've ever done in a way and it's i think um when I reread it myself at the end, I thought, you know what? It, it's This is Memorial Device, but it's a post-extabeth. This is Memorial Device, in a way. And because I began to see that people talk about my catalogue as if there's a slight break at a certain point. And, and I kind of agree. I mean, I think all my, my entire catalogue is one huge work unfolding and everything's related. Um, but Memorial Device and For the Good Times were part of one phase in that. They were books that were preconceived. There were books that I knew that I would write. I knew I would write a book about the, the, the sort of gratitude I had for my magical childhood, and about growing up and art and music, changing your lives, and about the post-punk years. I knew I would do that. I also knew I would write a book about the troubles based on my father and his, his brothers and their, their love of language and the way that language, they used language to redeem the terrible suffering that they'd been through during the troubles. So I always knew I would write those first two books. But beyond that, I had no idea, no conception. I would even write any other books or what they would be about Anyway. So when I began writing Exibeth, this was a new phase in in my creative life. And I was writing, I was letting books be spoken out of the air with minimum intervention by me and with no decision up front as to what they would be about, how they would go, anything, what length would be, anything at all. So, and I began writing books that I think were David Keenan books. You know, I I, I think I'd, I'd established my own voice and I began writing books that were purely books I could or would write. And so I definitely think that from then on, Extabeth, Monument Maker, Industry and Magic and Light, that is definitely the second phase. Although of course, industry relates to, to, to um, Memorial device. But yeah, it's post extabeth, certainly post Monument Maker. And there's references to all these books. If you're really into my books and you read them all, then mm-hmm. there are links. I always think of, it, of, of there's a sort of subterranean beneath the text, you know, and there's tunnels. And there's, all, there's different methods of ingress and, and there's also different exit points. So you can go in and out constantly. And sometimes I use like brackets, almost like trap doors that you drop down boom, beneath the text. And there are tunnels and you can follow these tunnels into and come up in another book. Often I would, sometimes I even repeat sentences or even like a whole paragraph paraphrased from another book. Because I almost think that this is a mirror spot, a mirror location or a point of ingress where you can dig into the other books. I leave these little trap doors throughout my books to sort of connect them all in a way.
0: Yeah, I definitely felt this in this book because this is the first book that um, I read because I think that Memorial Device and Monument Makeup had, for me anyway, had uh, similarities, but I couldn't really find them uh, easily. But this Mm -hmm. book kind of links your other books and it links them in a way that um, I think is really cool because it really talks to your themes, I think, especially like in your later works um, about things like mysticism and, you know, we've got tarot card readings, we've got all sorts of things, but it really does um, link your books extremely well. And um, yeah, it just made me think that, you know, that you are creating this entire universe within your work.
1: It feels like that to me. I never set out to do that, but now I'm realizing all my books are part of this one, uh, one sort of continuum. And one, one, of the big things again, which I didn't realize and wasn't conscious,ly that, that absolutely literally mirrors Monument Maker. For a start, look at Full Winds Mirror, which was the, the the book that was written, the, the book within the book in Monument Maker. But again, the idea of this idea of resurrecting the dead, mm-hmm. bringing back the dead, of the dead speaking. I mean, I, I think my books are, are literally haunted by the dead. And this happened again, and one of the things that I, I, I didn't quite figure out until I finished the book was what exactly was going on with, for instance, so you have a character, John Maris St. John, CID. I love that character, I really love those sections. And I began to realise that what happens with John Maris St. John is he's a cop, he's a pig, he's against the counterculture, he hates the hippies, he's kind of a square, and he's, he has a deformity, He's a hideous deformity. And he meets another policeman who also has a deformity, and in seeing and encountering this mirror, this mirror self out there, he experiences love, true love for the first time. And of course, the hippies, are the practitioners of love, they believe in love too. And so when his love dies, he he goes a little mad, but he's so his life has been so transformed by the power of love, he starts to believe in the power of magic. He starts to think, these hippies are onto something. Could they resurrect my great love? Is the power of love enough to break the bonds of the grave? And so what he does literally is he attends a ritual with the the, the inner order of industry and magic and light. And he literally steps through the mirror, into the mirror. He goes beyond seeing merely a reflection of himself as the love in the world to stepping through the mirror and seeing everything as a manifestation of that love itself. And in that redeeming moment, does he bring his love back? Quite possibly. All the way through the book, there are attempts, there are attempted rescues. That's what it occurs to me, there are attempted rescues all the way through the book. John Maris and John and his true love, Carol. Also, we have Alan Cardona, who loses Susie. And somehow, through these rituals, is almost a bringing things back to life. Then we have the liminal moment, which is one of the oddest moments for me, and I didn't know this where it was going to happen, where the boxer, Adam, who is in a coma for the first section of the book, He's in a coma for the second section of the book also, but he enters this liminal dead zone and he attempts to rescue Susie. And you can tell all the way through the second half of the book that sometimes he is literally waking up Mm. in his hospital bed, maybe coming through from his coma, in and out of his coma, but he's in the land of the dead and he's doing that classic descent and followed by an ascent where something is rescued and he, he does the attempted rescue of Susie. And these were, not again, these are not conscious themes. I don't go into books with conscious themes. But I was like, wow, all that was happening in the background, beneath me even consciously putting any of that together in a way. And that was kind of mind blowing. You know, when we, when, I, when we get to the end, even when we got to the end as well, and I didn't realize that even the, the theme of surf music, you know, the surf music is like the waters of life in a way. And it's like the idea of baptism, which is like a sort of begin again beginning again, and in a way that was the hippie ethos, begin again, begin again. And all the way through there are these examples of beginning again, but also of entering the waters. I think at the end, Susie steps into the waters that are as deep as this world, and is she reborn again, perhaps? And then so surf music became this beautiful theme. Surf music was, um, you know, John St. John talks about it like it's not mm-hmm. really for surfing, it's for standing in the waves and the froth. And of course, Aphrodite is born from the waves. So all these things, sort of we're woven into the theme without any conscious effort whatsoever and so at the end when she steps under the water and these double brackets appear and it just says surf music please." Mm. Well, that whole end section was written in one sitting, without a single conscious thought in my head and i saw when i dropped those brackets in i saw i sat back and i was like fucking hell yeah. <laughs> you know it's like wow what? who thinks this shit up it's mm. not me
0: you know mm. i guess to give some context to the setup of the book so it's kind of, I guess, in a way, it's a prequel to This is Moral Device because it's set in Airdrie in 60s and 70s, which is before Memorial Device. Uh, it's told in two parts. The first is almost a psychometry of the contents of a caravan. I think psychometry is really accurate because the memorabilia within this caravan speak of this time, you know, and the information that we're able to, like, pass from what is found in this caravan really creates this story that has multiple, multiple layers. The second part of the story gives in the form of, tarot, of a tarot card reading, which, again, is in line with, I think, more of your mystical beliefs um, in your later works as well. Do you want to tell us a bit more about Airdrie in the 60s and 70s?
1: Well, I mean, one of the main characters of Returns is, 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 is Teddy Ohm. And he was a major 60s head even in Memorial Divisal already. So it's really about a group of people around uh, Teddy Ohm who set up a, who have a, a sort of promotions thing where they do happenings and they put on events. And they also have a, a light show called Industry of Magic and Light, which is run by um, Tobias and uh, Alan Cardona. So they do all these kind of light events. But what, what kind of starts to happen is that it's all, they seem to have opened some kind of otherworldly channel. And hmm. some of the dead are somehow coming back and or disappearing. And they start to believe that they can literally do magic, that they can literally resurrect the dead. And they convince other people, I was talking John Marlowe and Johnny, he's a policeman who becomes convinced that they are, they are able not only to resurrect the dead, but in a way to to, to sort of splinter the self and send the self off into all these parallel lives that are possible to live every life of the self in a way. So the first half is, Based around that, it's an inventory of a caravan. These things that have been discarded, these remains are left of the happy dream, and this dirty old caravan is all that's left. But the narrator takes it so seriously that it's like opening an Egyptian tomb for the Mm. first time. Everything in that caravan has incredible significance. Everything, even the stray packets of crisps, anything like that, they're really, really significant. So it's telling an alternative history through cultural detritus through what had been almost discarded in a way. And I think that is a, a key theme through all my books as well, taking this marginal discarded stuff and building a culture and a, and a life and a model out of it somehow. So the second half is told via t- a tarot card reading, all the major arcana. But interestingly, it's told by someone who doesn't know how to read the tarot. In one <laughs> way, you know, So he's literally having to invent a story. It's quite bold. So, so I didn't attempt to make it, I mean, I know the tarot well. I designed that tarot deck because I'm very okay with its meanings, but I refused to make it a traditional tarot, you know, to give it traditional readings. Sometimes he stumbles on exactly what that card is about. Sometimes he, he opens up new readings for me of what these cards are about. Um, but also interestingly, he's using something that's traditionally predictive to read something retrospectively. But in a moment he he gets it at one point, at one point he says though. I think a friend says, him, I don't think it's really about predicting the future or even telling the past. It's about the possibilities of the moment. And that's always key. All my books are about possibility. What are the possibilities at this moment? So, and again, this second half is about the possibility. Is it possible that, that he has gone into this underworld and rescued Susie? Because Susie is a girl who is a partner of Alan Cardona in the first half of the book. And she goes on the happy trail with him to Afghanistan and she disappears. It's unclear what happens to her. There are theories, there are ideas, there are clues left behind, specifically the black feather that's left in the room when Alan returns and finds that she's gone. He believes that she's kidnapped. But there are turn-up stories because the second half of this is a boxer who was in a coma in the first half. And radio reports would constantly come on about Maurice Yushenko, mm-hmm. who was his opponent, and he had knocked this guy, who we later find out was called Adam, into a coma. John St. John keeps picking up on this in the back of his mind somehow. And then there's this whole theory running through the whole thing about the opponent, the opponent. But first, Adam was the nameless opponent of Maurice Shishenko, who also mirrors Maris, John Maris and John, both of the sea, in a way. And so there's this whole idea in the second half about the opponent. He's constantly training as a boxer. He's constantly finding out what his relationship to the opponent is. And he begins to talk about how the opponent gifts you the experience of your own body. In other words, you need something that is not you to discover you. this becomes another another sort of, um, another love equation. This another brings love in that, the, that you need to somehow, the, the gift of the other gifts you the understanding of your own body. So, so this in the second half, the opponent, Adam, is again, he is using his opposition to somehow step through a mirror as well, step through the mirror of himself and rescue someone else. These are all the ideas that came afterwards in the writing of the book. And of course, the second half, I wanted the book to be not a book about the 1960s. I don't want to make a point about the 1960s. or I I, I don't want to merely describe the 1960s. I wanted to transport you to the 1960s completely and utterly. So I wanted to use things that people in the 1960s were very into using and tarot cards was a big thing for that as well. So I thought rather than talk about people like using tarot cards, tarot cards become part of the book. The objects from the 1960s become part of the book and we transmit, we transfer, and I still believe you can transmit things, objects, places, experiences through space and time if you can get rhythm and language right. So this is what it was an attempt to do.
0: Oh, you have succeeded spectacularly in this book I can tell you that much I guess with the structure of this book and it's similar to Memorial Device in that it's got short little chapters and, and things like that the I guess the way you've written it gives you the permission to explore a range of different styles genres there's like the whole John Maris and John uh, aspect of the book. He's almost like a Paul Astor-esque psychic detective book. And I know how much you love his work. This book must have been so much fun to write.
1: I never thought of the Paul uh, comparison. That's a brilliant one. I mean, I, I'm a huge, a huge fan, as you know. I mean, Leviathan is one of my absolute favourite books of all time. And I've always wanted to write a little sort of, a sort of like police procedural or a, yeah. a little bit of a sort of crime thriller or something So I liked having that aspect. It was so much fun. I've put so much of what I love in these books. You know, mm. like, Within the John Morrison St. John section, there's a science fiction club. And mm-hmm. I love all that type of stuff. And I really enjoyed going to the science fiction meetings and meeting everyone there. And, and their eccentric conversations that they would have as well. And yes, I had a lot of fun, a lot of fun writing this book and thinking up the bands as well. And but not just that, meeting characters again. Teddy Ohm, he's a madman. Mm-hmm. I absolutely love him. So much mm-hmm. more was added to the Teddy Ohm mythos. Who knew he was in New York in 1966 and hung out with mm-hmm. the Velvet Underground. He went to the balloon farm and hung out with Harry Smith. I mean, that was a brilliant new twist. And also, Sinew Singer, who was a 1950s wrong and roll star in Airdrie, uh, who was mentioned in Memorial Device, he's back. He's in this book. And mm-hmm. this, this is the, ma- the sort of magic way that we work with these books. I'll tell you an interesting story about how Sinyu Singer came to be in this book. He wasn't in the book at first. I'd written a long draft, absolutely just battered out month upon month upon month. It was kind of quite a messy manuscript first. So I got the messy manuscript to my editor, Lee. And I took some time out and moved on and booked some Moses to work on that bit. And then when Lee was ready, I went down to Lee's and we went to this little country pub, little country pub, and Lee had printed out the book and he would a lot of notes and we, we talked for hours just having some beers and Lee had brilliant ideas. Lee immediately was structuring it really well. It was his idea to have the sections, you know, light, magic. And then, of course, we needed industry and I did that at the last minute with the final industry postscript. So he divided up into that, talked about how we would do John Maris and John. And I mentioned to him that um, a, a, a friend, a, a writer from New York, who I've been friends with for a while, she um, gave me this incredible present. She was, well, she was a clearing out her house. And when she was younger, she, she got Rolling Stone magazine like every single time it came out. And her father hand-bound every issue of them in hardback volumes. And she said, would you like this as a gift? And I was like, <laughs> hell, I'm writing Industry of Magic and Light and someone gifts me the, an entire run of Rolling Stone. That's fucking amazing. So one of the things I was doing when I was writing the book was every day I, would, I read the entire run of Rolling Stone from start to finish. Every single day I would read right through everything. And in, in it was amazing. It was just, I was luxuriating in that culture. And some things came directly from that. Like there's a bit about Playboy records and there's an advert from Playboy records on Rolling Stone that directly out of my reading of uh, Rolling Stone. And then I happened just to mention Lee and this is how me and Lee work. It's like a very unconventional editor-writer relationship. Also because we're best friends, but I always say that he can read a book's mind and he, he really can. He brings a magic to these editorials that we do. And he said, I was saying a bit, that one of the most fun things in Rolling Stone was the the, the classified ads. They really give you the the, the, the feel of the time. And one of the most thing that the thing that was most commonly advertised in the classifieds at the end was waterbeds. And I said to Lee, Wow, you wouldn't believe them in a waterbeds to get advertised in fucking Rolling Stone. It was so crazy one time. And Lee was just like you know what? I think there's probably a waterbed in that caravan somewhere, don't you think? <laughs> and that was all we said. And I was like, Yeah, okay. And my, <laughs> my mind was, Well, let's see. So I kind of went back, was working on the, on, the, on the final edit, and that was a lot of work again. I mean, I did, I worked for three months solid on this final edit, like non stop, every day, all day, again and again. The book was transforming at such an incredible rate. I knew I was on it, I knew I was getting it. I couldn't stop. The book knew what it wanted to be. So during this mad three month edit, I just said, one day I sat down and said, like, you know what? We've got to stick a waterbed in here and see what happens. So, mm. and in my mind's eye, it was mind-blowing. As soon as I saw, so when I was writing this book, I would walk into this caravan and I would see these objects. So that's so I sat down to write, I opened the caravan door as usual. I went in, I looked for a waterbed. There it was lying on the floor under the bed. But the mad thing about it was, was a logo on the waterbed. So, and I literally, this is how it happened. I looked at the logo and it said, Hannah, H-A-N-N-A. Yeah. And I was like, we are fucking saying. <laughs> One, I was like, wait, so Mary Hannah's dad is selling war beds. And I was like, who's Mary Hannah's dad? Mm. I was like, we are fucking saying that Sinu Singer. Sinu mm. Singer is Mary Hannah's father. And since he's not in rock and Roll anymore, he's selling war beds and making a fortune. And so what happens is Teddy Wilming tries to convince um, Sinu Singer to do a comeback gig. And Sinyu's like, I told he doesn't want to say out. Well. He's like, I don't do any of fucking fucking back, you know, bullshit. I'm not an. It's, it's not like entertainment. I do me. I was a real deal. I'm a true, wrong, role legend. And, and uh, uh, so Teddy's like, well, I'm going to hook you up with commandos of death. You know, Eardree's the greatest psychedelic rock group. And so they play this incredible concert. And I find that concert that they play very moving. They do a version of a Morning Dew, which... You know the dead. The dead have done so many fucking incredible jams on Morning Dew. It's one of my favourite Grateful Dead jams. And when I heard that Commandos of Death were playing that, I was like, "Oh wow! Some new singer's gonna sing Morning Dew <laughs> with Commandos of Death." And again, it's about be- it's about beginning again. It's a post-apocalyptic thing about beginning again. The people will never see again. So they have this incredible moment. Or beginning again, and the thrilling thing was for me. So, they go to pick Stinny Singer up, and he's down at the garages and he's dressed looking like fucking Elvis 68. And he says he wants to get smuggled in, he doesn't want any fans to see him till he's on stage. And I looked to his right when Alan Cardona's talking to him, and I'm like, fucking hell, there's Mariana. Oh, and, and she was a I young girl, this. she was a young girl, she's dressed as an Indian squaw with a feather on her hair. I was like, oh my god, I never thought I'd see. Mary as a young girl and Sinew was her father. And again, I wept. I mean, I I weep every time Mary Hannah turns up in my fucking books. I cried when she turned up in Monument Maker. Mm -hmm. And yet again, it's only a glimpse. She turned up in 5,000 words of Monument Maker. And here she turned up as well. I I get to see her once, but it was worth it. And it was so beautiful. And for me, it was discovering that. So that was me and Lee brainstorming this mad idea that eventually was, that's how the book ends, really, the, the climax of that concert. And that all came from... Stick a, stick a waterbed in that caravan, why don't you? And that was remarkable to me, you know? Yeah. And the other thing that was interesting for me that was fun in this book is there's a lot of actual, you know, first-generation documents, real documents presented in this book. And I was able to do that because, one, I'm a huge collector of 1960s artifacts. I love the culture. and I'm a hippie at heart. So I collect poetry chapbooks. I collect original letters. I collect a lot. Of, and I have a lot of original letters. I have original letters from the, all the writers I love. You know, Charles Olson, Jack Hirschman. I use a real letter that Jack Hirschman wrote and that was actually inside a copy of a book by Frater Akkad, Charles Stansfield-Jones, who's the guy that taught Malcolm Lowry, his Kabbalah. I use that exact, I transcripted that letter. There's a letter from George Dowden, the British poet. I use that exact letter. But in my book, he's writing to a guy that runs a bookshop in Airdrie. Mm -hmm. not somewhere else. So I slightly twist it. So I loved putting these actual artifacts from the time in that are actually true into the sort of fictional narrative that somehow means it comes closer. It's able to tell the story of the 1960s better than than an objective telling would be somehow because it gets to the psychic reality, what it felt like, the objects that were in people's hands, how people thought, I wanted to get all that in there and also I wanted it to be a celebration a celebration of a culture that I love and that I still think is really, really important and whose values I still stand for
0: 100%. Well, I completely loved it. I would love to ask you if you'd like to read a little bit of the book for us.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, let, me just find, let me just find my place. I don't think I've prepared one, but I know what one I'd like to read. This is from one of the John Maris St. John sections, which I really enjoy. Two bodies are discovered in a flat next to Tollcross Park. Outside there was a green Ford Mustang with fake plates. Only the bodies seemed to have spontaneously combusted and left the rest of the room comparatively untouched. All that is left of one body is a single leg. The two corpses lie in mounds next to the couch, as if they had simply slid off into ashes. Stinky ashes. A very particular stinky, John St. John thinks to himself. The flat was being illegally sublet by a white boy named a Saul. The tenants, presumably the bodies, had given Saul false identification. They had rented the flat under the names Jan and Dean Berry. Oh, that's a surf duo, the guy from Forensic says. What's a surf duo? John St John asks him. Jan and Dean. Jan and Dean's a surf duo. no. Johnson John attempts to clarify. I mean, what is a surf duo? Jan and Dean, the guy from Forensic says, who at this moment is sliding a paper thin section of human skin into a resealable bag, is an example of a surf duo. I don't know what a surf duo is though, Johnson John protests. They're a duo that plays surf music. What is surf music though? Listen. You ever heard the pyramids? The pyramids? Baldies that play surf music, surf rock, surf instrumentals? No, John St. John has has obviously never heard of the pyramids. So it means instrumental music? No, not just, listen, you must know the beach boys. No, John St. John confesses. He's never heard of these beach boys. Okay, well, they kind of invented it, surf music even though only one of them could surf. Do you have to surf to be a beach boy? Obviously not. But what is the definition of surf music? It's the sound these bands had. Well, well, can you describe the sound? And here the guy from forensics has struck gold and he lets out a gasp as he slowly draws a single blackened tooth from the ash of a carbonated jaw. It's quite, uh, what's the word? Not strummy, but like, what's the word? Like, like a kind of fast tremolo sound on the guitars. What's the word? John St John shakes his head. He has no idea of the word. Is that an ear? John St John says. And he points to what looks like a charred fetus or a terrible fleshy shell. Yes, the guy forensics says, an ear. Bravo, Detective Constable, he says. But the point is that this was music meant to accompany surfing and hanging out at the beach in California, like a soundtrack to The Good Life. And one of the biggest groups were a duo, two guys named Jan and Dean. What was their record? John St. John asked them. Oh, they had many records, many hits. Name me some of these hits, John St. John instructs them. Surf City, the guy from Forensic says, Drag City, Dead Man's Curve, I found a girl. How did they die? Jan and Dean. After Dead Man's Curve became a hit, Jan wrecked his car at Dead Man's Curve in Beverly Hills, the guy from Forensics explains, and ended up with serious brain damage. He died from a seizure years later. That's what's called a self-fulfilling prophecy, John St. John says. The guy from Forensics is running a tiny little paintbrush along the edge of the fireplace in his white clothes, his tongue between his teeth, down on his hands and knees. He moves so delicately, like a painter. What's a tautology? The guy from Forensics asks John St. John, making the same point repeatedly, only using different words each time. Life is a tautology, the guy from Forensics says, and he holds up a little fragment of eyelash. Is that one Jan and Dean as well? Johnson John asks. Twangy, the guy from Forensics and ounces. That's the word I was looking for. Twangy.
0: Brilliant. I love it. It is yeah. uh, honestly like I cannot recommend this book highly enough. It is just so good. It's fun. I think it's just, yeah. I honestly I read it in the weekend and I seriously want to go back to it. I want to ask you, what are you working on at the moment?
1: Well, at the moment, I'm going back. Books of Moses is going to be the next thing I go back to again, which is, I think I spoke about that to you before, yeah. It starts up when uh, someone is, is having a, I mean, it's mad as having a, a tour of Auschwitz, Auschwitz-Birkenau particularly, and um, they go down into the, um, the punishment chamber. So I was very affected when I visited Auschwitz myself, when we, when we were taken to the, the, the punishment centres where there was a tight, a tiny cell which isn't big enough to stand up in and there's a small maybe two foot, three foot gap at the bottom where you're sort of pushed under where you can't really get in or out and something about it really affected me and and when the tour left that area I got down on my hands and knees and crawled with my head I couldn't get head and shoulders under just to put, I felt the urge to do that and so I began writing this Books of Moses thing came to me in that Uh, It starts with somebody doing that exact thing, they crawl into the punishment cell, and they press the back wall, and the back wall opens, and they somehow descend into the underworld, or Hades, and he finds all these people there that don't know that they're dead, and his goal, his task, is to try and lead the dead out of the underworld and allow them to die. Again, it's the of the disappeared. And this is a recurring theme, so all my books. It's a heavy book and I don't know where it's going at the moment. It's going all sorts of crazy places at the moment. I don't know where it's going to end up. I've been working on that in sections. Sometimes like Monument Maker, maybe, I'm finding it quite heavy. So I put it aside, I work on other stuff and I go back again. The other book that I'm working on is one of my life works, which is um, I Am the Body of All the Conquistadors, which is a book, uh, partly memoir, partly about my father and also partly about the conquest of Mexico, and they're all sort of tied up in that as well, and and so I actually, unlike a lot of my books, I have actually been doing research for this book. So I've been doing a lot of research about the Mayan glyphs. That's an interest that I've always had. If mm. Charles Olson and you know, was very very interested in, in the Mayan glyphs as well, and Olson was is this huge intellectual figure for me that I find it very hard to go past. He's so intelligent, and I can't get to the bottom of Charles Olson. Although one reassuring thing that I found about Olsen is that he got quite a few things wrong. And I had this idea that Olsen could never, it was unbeatable in his thought. And so I've been reading a lot about the, 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 the Mayan glyphs because I was very interested in the idea that um, Olsen had that, or, or was obsessed with that there was a, and Ezra Pound was also obsessed with the idea of ideograms, the idea of pure ideograms, that, that something can, pu- can, can have no phonetic content whatsoever. While pointing to something. So it's just purely was an image. It had no sound or phonetic quality attached to it. Ezra Pound was interested in Chinese ideograms in terms of that, you know, where the, the thing itself is drawn or encoded in, in the figure. And Olson too had this theory, which was just being completely debunked now, but had this theory that Mayan that Mayan glyphs were pure ideograms, that it was no phonetic content. And he loved that because he thought it was just that it was a simple pointing to, it was a pointing to, without even using a sound that matched it. It was it was a sort of mirror. It looked like the thing it was and it had no phonetic content. That's been totally fascinating to me, but has, as I read about the Maya glyphs, actually it's not true. The people who cracked the Mayan glyphs, specifically a whole group of Russian intellectuals, actually, um, established that there was a phonetic correlation with every one of the glyphs that there was a phonetic thing, that it wasn't a sort of pure, non sounded thing, which I loved because it said to me that everything is speaking. Everything is speaking. Even these dead chords that they thought didn't have a phonetic content were speaking, had a sound related to the world. I love that. Another thing I'm interested with about Mayan civilization, it's another idea I got from Olsen that ties in with industry and magic and light, is at one point, he says something like, they were hot, these Mayans, hot to get it down. They were hot for, They were hot for this world. These Mayans, hot to get it down as it is, exactly as it was. And he said that I'm hot for that. I'm hot for this world to get it down as it is, as it was. I'm hot for this world. I can totally see that. That makes sense to me. Um, But his other thing was he said that the Mayans were a culture of non-improvement. And I was like, boom, that blew my mind. A culture of non-improvement. That's what I'm all about. It's a culture that sees the world as it is, not as it should be not as it would be, not as it will be, as it is, get that down. Get that down the way the world comes at you. Get it down exactly like that. And that was inspiring to me. And I thought to myself, the hippie culture, that was a culture, radical culture of non-improvement. People always talk about the hippie culture as a utopian project. I hate that. I hate utopia. I, I never want to live in a utopia. The idea of a utopia implies to be 100% compliance from all mm-hmm. citizens, and that terrifies me. The idea of a utopia is hell on earth. In fact, I think that the the the... the pursuit of utopia has been the cause of humanity's great misery throughout the time, absolutely 100%. I'm totally an anti-utopian. But when I heard a culture of non-improvement, I was like, boom, that's what the hippies did. It was a culture of non-improvement. It was like, this is enough. We do not need this future vision of some kind of mad utopia. Can we grow our own vegetables? Can we build our own house? Can we chop our own firewood? Can we make our own music? Can we dance to our own dances? yes that's what i call a culture of non-improvement and that's how i live and so i've been very very interested in the mayans and also the conquest of maya and everything that happened there to me it's absolutely fascinating so i'm gonna i I get i'm constantly working on this book i am the body of all the conquistadors and another thing i've been doing is i I like to do these mistranslations i did a lot in monument maker you know like well i translated Pierre riverdy even though my french is crap you know i use loads of dictionaries and I, i sort of do creative translations what i've also been doing in this book is i've been creatively translating the letters of the conquistadors that they wrote and sent back home. But I've rewritten them, as if the the conquistadors are all writing to their fathers to explain what they are doing in Mexico. And at the same time, the book that I am writing, which is parallel to this, or another part of I and the Body of the Conquistadors, is me communing with my father, whose remains I drowned in a river in Durham, which was a, it was a call. He was born with a call and could never drown. I -hmm. threw that into the river at Durham, and, I, and you make call it a moment of vision, a moment of madness. I, I wasn't sure what. I threw it in there. And, and then I realized that because his call can never drown, that, he, uh, that he's alive in all the waterways of the world. And straight after I drowned in my father's call, I flew to Mexico, where I spent three months, um, including other parts of South America, but mostly Mexico, from Tijuana to um, uh, uh, Mexico City um, to Quirotaro, lots of different areas. And I got people to take me to waterways. Um, whether it was rivers, whether it was like stinky cesspits, whether it was like buckets of water next to Takira stands, all this, and I I tried to imagine that the essence of my father was in all that water, and I was communing with him. Even as I was flying over to Mexico, I imagined my father down below arriving before me in Mexico on the waves. So all these things are sort of coming together. I'm writing about my relationship with my father. I'm also writing about what happened when I first became published, the experiences I had then, because I definitely struggled with mental health early on when I was writing these books. And I'm paralleling it with the, the history of the Mayan glyphs and the conquest mm. of Mexico. So it's quite a bold book. And I've been working on it for years. And, and, and I still don't know if I'm going to publish it. I don't know. It feels like a life work. Um, but at the moment, these are the ideas, yeah, the projects that are consuming me. So I've been doing a lot of my reading at the moment is taken up with reading stuff on the Maya or early Mexican history.
0: David, I cannot tell you how much I would love to read that book both those books you spoke about, but that that particular one about Mexico sounds unbelievable. And um, obviously with your father, we know that like that comes through with Monument Maker as well. So yep. I cannot wait to see that in print if it ever gets there.
1: See, yeah, it feels like a life work. It feels like it would be my final book. You know what, you know, I want to make a queen car. I want it. what no. I want to do is I want, I, I'm never going to release a book unless I think it's 100% as good as all my other books. If it's not, it just doesn't get released at this point. But there are Mm. other reasons for not releasing books. Sometimes I just think it was necessary for me to do that work. That Mm. was a ritual that I had to do, and it's finished, and maybe it doesn't need to have a public life. I don't know. I don't think in my lifetime, I will publish all the books that I've written. I genuinely have come not to believe that now. All my books won't be published within my lifetime. It's not possible, and I just think some of them, it's just not the right time. So I do intend to leave some books, and it, it'll probably be up to whoever becomes my executor to make decisions if other books come out at the same time. Or certain books, that I'm probably going to make the decision not to publish in my lifetime, and we'll yes. see. Conquistor is on the edge of that. I, I don't know. It's so raw. It, it's so raw, and it, it's a it's a very incredibly heavy book for me. Very heavy, and I review a review a lot of stuff. Uh, and it's a visceral book. So I still I, I really don't know. But I, I want I want to do a rainbow. I want to I want to cure myself of literature. I want to write the best books I could possibly have written. and I don't want to keep dribbling on. And then yeah. I want to go. I want mm-hmm. to disappear, disappear completely, and just leave the books. Sometimes I fantasise that, or maybe only publish two more books. Sometimes that I know, and and the next two will be the next one will be. It's a book called Paimon, which is a a sequel to this is Memorial Device, and also a sequel to um, Monument mm-hmm. Maker. Yeah. So it brings all these worlds together. As you were saying, Industry imagining like is starting to do that, but Paimon does it the most overtly. Part of it's set in The character comes from Monument Maker, so it's all these things coming together. And in a way, I feel like Paimon, who knows, I can't predict how these books are gonna go. I could never have predicted I would have written these books. So I don't know where it's gonna go next, but I feel as if, if Paimon was my final novel, it would kind of be perfect. Because it feels like a summation of everything else, and then after that, I am the body of all the conquistadors. Would be a memoir, which would actually, which would be the non-fictional correlation to all the books, because it's tied in. As you say, the drowning of my father features uh, one of the characters does that very same thing in Monument Maker. So this this could finally be the cap on it. So sometimes I think if I get two more books, I don't know, but I do know that at one point I will make the, de- the decision to stop publishing, and. We'll see what happens after that.
0: Well, either way, I know that I will read anything you write. And I know that most of the people listening to this will read anything you write because I think your writing is unbelievable. And, yeah, I just I just love what you're doing. And I, I love the fact that, you know, that you're ready to, to kind of leave it when you're ready to leave it.
1: Gotta be right, yeah. Rimba is the most successful poet of all time because mm. he cured himself of poetry at eighteen and he walked off into life. And the way all my books are about walking off into life, and I really do feel like uh, I'm not being doomy, I don't think my life's over. I mean, I'll disappear in garden for twenty years or something. You know what I mean? Mm. But I do feel that I've done, I've done what I came here to do. Yeah. I didn't even know that I came here to do this, but I now know that I did come here to do this, and I've done it. You know, and I, I always say like my, my dreams came true. I wrote the books that were beyond what I believed I could do. And my dreams came true with these books. So, I mean, I feel artistically and creatively, it's a mad thing to say, I am completely and utterly fulfilled, which is an amazing feeling. So now I can go off and garden quite happily for 20 years, you know?
0: (laughs) Well, I do hope, like, in a completely selfish sense, I do hope you go on writing for quite a long time because I'll be lapping it up. Before we wrap this up, I do want to get some recommendations for you because I know your taste is very similar to mine. I want to hear about what you're currently reading and books you're looking forward to reading.
1: Okay, here's an example of of stuff I'm reading. I've always got a lot of books on the go. Some of
0: these are rereads. So
1: a lot of nonfiction at the moment as well. So First off, I'm halfway through a complete reread of... The complete correspondence of Charles Olson and Robert Crewe. Um, I, I managed to get an entire run of the art edition, which is signed by Crewe, so it's a beautiful edition. And again, it's just mind blowing the, the, the way that Crewe and Olson think and talk, and even their syntax, their rhythm, their use of commas. I love it. It's so original. It's so brilliant. It's just two minds that are in love with language. And like, so I can't, I mean, uh, I, I do a reread of the complete correspondence of Crew and Oaks in every few years. I'm rereading Oaks every year of my life. And but I say I'm particularly enjoying it this time. Some amazing ideas in here. Absolutely mind-blowing. Um, again, this is part of my, my Mayan reading. This is a great book, Breaking the Mayan Code by Michael Co. It's kind of written like a thriller in a way as well. It's kind of like it's more about the personalities who broke the Mayan code, the ones that got it wrong, the ones that got it right, They're, these obsessive eccentric characters, everything I love. Really great book. Recommend that. Um Love and Let Die, I've started this. John Higgs is one of my favourite writers. His, his book on William Blake, William Blake Versus the World, which mm. came out last year, is one of the best books ever on William Blake. And it's not just about William Blake, it's about creativity in general. You know, it's about um, um, anyone who works with the imagination. I think I blurbed it, and I called it a user's guide to the imagination. And it really was. And so this is now what... Higgs is doing now. And me and John Higgs were in conversation on Monday night at the launch of Industry of Magic and Light. He's a great thinker. This is an interesting book where he ties up the history of the James Bond movies and the Beatles Hmm. in order to sound the psyche of Britain, the UK in the 1960s. And it's brilliantly done. Fascinating. Really, really brilliantly done. And what else we got here? I'm back on Lowry again. I'm back on Malcolm Lowry. I'm rereading this, which is the 1940 Under the Volcano, which is the original manuscript that Lowry thought destroyed. And w- w- which was radically rewritten for the final one. But if you're a Lowry head, this is mind-blowing. I mean, it's, it's, it's a nascent, slightly different version of Volcano. And if you know it well, it will blow your mind. But not only that, they have these uh, annotations. This guy, Chris Ackerley, annotates it, right? And the annotations are like, endless. And they're fucking fascinating. They're funny. They're hilarious. They're obsessively detailed. Previously, Chris Ackerley did a really good book about uh, Samuel Beckett it's like an 80 Z encyclopedia of Simon Beck. And again, it's like that's of it's so um it's so fun and obsessive and in detail. So anything that accurately annotates, I read. And when I heard there was this coming out, an annotated version of the early volcano manuscript. Well, it's heaven on earth for me. Absolutely incredible. It's not under the volcano, it's not as good as under the volcano. There's so much slow, ex slow sort of scholarly exposition there. Are these, absolutely fantastic conversations that nobody would ever talk like in a way hmm. but i love malcolm and, I, and any scrap of malcolm that still survives i want to read so this is really blowing me away um, another person who i'm a huge fan of is uh, edward sanders the beat poet and uh, he's still alive he just celebrated his birthday last week and he's still doing incredible stuff he really got into like glyphs where are kind of like you know i was talking about like we we're talking about glyphs earlier on which i'm obviously very interested in Where from the the Mayan glyphs onwards I and mean, the Egyptian glyphs. But he sort of created his own art form where he draws these little gifs. I don't know if you can see oh, that. there. Yeah, oh, and he has yeah. words and, he, and they're really, really magical. they're based yeah. on like Egyptian stiwa, but are these magical little ruminations. So I've been going to this new book of glyphs I just got from Edward Sanders, which I've been reading through as well. Really, really remarkable. He's done so much to document the counterculture. He's a really amazing person. Um, and this is next up in terms of music books. And this is uh, DJ Screw. A Life yeah. in Slow Revolution by Lance Scott Walker. It's a kind of oral history of um um southern hip hop, specifically Houston, H Town, which is where my wife's from. And so we we spent a past a lot of the past 18 years in Houston. We normally mm-hmm. spend Christmas and New Year there. And going there, I know really he got into the music of DJ Screw, he's dead now because he was. Drinking a lot of purple drank, and a lot of these guys died. But he had this thing where he slowed down, he would slow down records and tapes at a sort of slow speed. Mm-hmm. And something they would rap over the top, or he would, would slow down like Phil Collins coming in the air. So it sounds like this sort of baritone soul singer. And then they would get around and they would sort of freestyle over the top of these records. And they were all drinking purple drank, which makes you go really slow. Um, and it suits Houston. The air is so thick with heat, you feel like you're driving through thick heat on a really slow pace. And this is what the music sounds like, it's so remarkable. And it was totally DIY. Screw began doing mixtapes and selling them out of his house. And there'd be queues, cars, queued right up his street and up his driveway, like a drive-through so they could buy the latest cassettes. So it's this total underground DIY culture. And then there was a place called Screwed Up Records and Tapes, which still exists. And me and my wife go there quite a lot. It's the only record shop in the world dedicated to one artist. It's only, only stocks DJ Screw. Mixes. And so you go, go screwed up record and tape, so we can get them all on CD now. And there's hundreds of them. So we would go there a lot, we'd buy loads of CDs early on. We got some screw t-shirts and fell in love with that whole culture. Went went to see a couple of rappers, we went to see Candy Red at one point and some of the H-town rappers. I really got into the whole contemporary H-town scene as well, with rappers like Zero and things like that So really excited about that. And, 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 and you know, I love oral histories. I mean, that's what my Direction is really inspired by as well. So I'm really excited about this as well. So that's just an example. That's a random take of what's lying on my my desk at the the moment.
0: Brilliant. Okay. Well, I should let you go. But before we do, do you want to tell us where we can go and buy your amazing industry of magic and light and get in touch with you?
1: Okay, so it should be available everywhere. I mean, it should be available at any major bookstores. If you use Amazon, of course, that's up to you. You can get it there. Most independent bookstores will have it. In the UK, Waterstones will be stocking it all as well. Um, you can also buy there's a lot of record shops think like about my books says they get stocked in record shops as well as bookshops, which I always really really like I don't know why other writers don't do that more you can get it in at, at, at my, my local record shop Monorail have a special edition that's got a full fam, Airdrie family tree which mm-hmm. I did with my one of my favourite uh, fanzine writers Lindsay Hutton he hand lettered it and so you get this free poster if you order it from uh, Monorail. You can go to monorail.com. The poster is interesting because it's got a lot of extra information that isn't in any of the books, and it's got some of the information that won't even appear until Paimon on this chart as well. It's quite, we're pretty obsessive with it, linking all the bands up together. Mm-hmm. So you can pick it up from Monorail Music via mail order if you want to get that special edition. And um, if you want to check me out or keep in touch with me, I'm on Twitter, I'm fairly active on there. My handle is at reverse diorama. And I'll post everything. I'll put all, all my reviews, and that's coming up, any events coming up. That's the best way to keep in touch with me and find out um, what's up next.
0: I cannot recommend this book highly enough uh, and all of your work. Like I just, I have fallen in love with your books over the last mm-hmm. year. So yeah, just congratulations on this new work and I cannot wait to see what you come up with next and I hope we can catch up soon.
1: Thank you, Ben. I look forward to coming on the programme with Pine out. hopefully.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, you never know. We might catch up in Glasgow at some point.
1: That would be amazing. That would be absolutely brilliant. And thank you so much. It means a lot to hear that. I mean, to hear that people are affected by these books always completely blows me away. It's really, really, it's amazing. It's been, yeah. it's been an incredible trip. It really has.
0: Brilliant. Well, I hope uh, you have continued success with your books. Hope to talk to you soon.
1: Great. Thank you, Ben.
0: Thanks once again to David Keenan. Check out the show notes for all the details. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at beyondzeropod and you can email us at beyondthezeropod at gmail.com. We'll be back with the next episode very soon.